You're listening to episode five of the Architecture and Anthropocene podcast brought to you by Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, with me, David Pleasant. Each episode will be bringing you some of the thoughts and insights of architects, designers, urbanists, and a sound artist that have all passed through the Triennale's doors here in Milan. Ricky Burdett is Professor of Urban Studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Director of the Urban Age Project, which he founded in 2005. At the end of 2018, Burdett launched Shaping Cities in an Urban Age, the third in the Urban Age series of publication published by Faden. Urban Age has become the go-to reference point for urbanists, architects, policymakers, in fact, just about anyone who has an interest in the cities we live in. Burdett has reasons to be very optimistic and plenty of concerns too. Ricky Burdett, thank you very much for joining us. Perhaps if we if we launch into the latest publication that you're going to speak about here at the Triennale, Shaping Cities in an Urban Age. We've become used to Urban Ages uh, publications. They've really sort of become a volume of record uh, for all those engaged uh, in or concerned with or simply interested in the city today, and that's a hell of a lot of people. The book states that two billion more people will be living in cities by 2050. And crucially, investment in these cities, and 90% of them are in Asia and Africa, has not yet happened. So we can either get it wrong or we can get it right. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I know that's a vast topic, but can you expand on that? What, what in your view, or Urban Age's view, is wrong and what is right in terms of cities? Well, it's a very important point you're making, that most of the urbanisation is going to happen very fast in countries where today it's relatively low energy and, relative, and areas are relatively poor. Not all, but... Therefore, it's an opportunity to absolutely mess things up or steer things in a certain way, which is why we call the book Shaping Cities. And shaping here means uh, literally the shape, the form, you know, is it sprawling or is it dense? And shaping in terms of governance and steering in that sense. And those two things are central to your question. Because uh, unfortunately, now it's 15 years that we've been working on this at London School of Economics, most of the urban development that is happening around the world, wherever, right, wherever, is still going what I would say the wrong direction. And on two, let's take just two aspects of it. One would be the social, and the second would be the environmental. At the social level, cities, as we know, can either humanize or brutalize. They can either bring people together of difference, rich, poor, different colors, etc., and actually make them live better together. Uh, you and I have been lucky to live in a city, London, where that's on the whole been the case. Or they can do exactly the opposite. They can segregate, distance people, and create barriers between them. Richard Sennett, one of the authors in the book, has written extensively about the notion of openness and, and togetherness, so to speak, or exclusion. And I have to say that, uh, particularly, say, in Latin America, one has seen cities of walls, literally, of, of distinct communities 
of different income levels, different belief systems, living separately. I think that is a serious challenge uh, that uh, can be steered. And after hearing Eyal Weissman a moment ago, so much depends on just putting the facts on the table, right? Because actually, what I'm, you and I are saying is not obvious to many. So maybe one part of this publication is to you know put these facts out there. And I am convinced you can design, shape cities in such a way that they can foster better social inclusion. And at the heart of that is the grid and the democracy of the urban grid, as opposed to a series of gated communities. Moving to the second point, the environment. If I, the social is brutalized and hu humanized uh, as a sort of extreme cases, in the case of the environment, it's exactly the same. Cities are, of course, the problem at one level because people come into cities in order to do stuff. They come to make things, they industry. Uh, they move around, they have machinery, and therefore they pollute. So clearly they are, in many ways, the center of uh, CO2 emissions. 75% of world CO2 emissions come from cities. But if you design them right, again, and the word design becomes important here, you can actually turn cities round. Right? Um, I was always uh, in, in, impressed by the fact that an economist who I work with called Nick Stern, mm -hmm. classic economist, doesn't look at pictures or maps, was so impressed by this, he's the sort of big climate change economist, that he's now turned his attention in trying to get cities on the United Nations agenda, etc., because simply you can make changes to cities quickly. You can turn them around, as I say, in five, ten years. So places like, you know, and this is the easy thing to say in well-off Europe uh, or Singapore or Hong Kong, you can actually have district heating systems. You can reduce the dependency on the car. You can promote all sorts of cycling or whatever. And I would say most of the African cities that I'm looking at now, which are featured in the book and I'm going to talk about, are going in exactly the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. But probably the biggest issue is sprawl. Basically, if you let a city go on forever, that's why we call the first books the endless city, right? Yeah. Mexico City, Los Angeles, whatever, any, just never ends, right? And if you can see the right. That brings with it a strain on services, sewers, lighting, but cars. You know, average commuting time, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, Bangkok are four hours a day, right? If you instead design them to have a boundary, right, and in London in 1943 it was called the Green Belt, right, very simple idea. Some people think it's, you know, wow, can you actually do that? Yeah, you can. You just decide that you do it. And, and you're telling them that by kind of itemizing city right. by city, conurbation yeah. by conurbation, yeah. really kind of laying, laying it down. Yeah, so if sprawl is evil in terms of the environment, concentrated, dense, well-connected is the positive side. And there I'm more optimistic. I actually am seeing cities around the world beginning to put some of those um, sort of legal processes in place. And clearly the Asian high-density cities, and China in particular, is pretty much ahead of the game. I'm very interested in, in um, the opportunity, political or, or otherwise, of, of cities. And I think uh, you mentioned Europe, uh, which certainly uh, w we tend to have more comfortable, better cities than perhaps some of the other regions that you mentioned. But still, people in, in the sort of age of populism and, and so on, people are looking at cities as sort of more direct, better way of getting change affected, even in 
the first world, developed world. Um, would you agree on that? No, and, and do you I, find that you, for you're... For sure, and that's yeah. why they can change for the better or the worse, as I say, very quickly. Uh, but it's a very simple um, issue. You know, if you're at a level of national government, before you can actually implement change on the ground, it, it takes a long time trickle-down effect. If you're a city and you want to introduce congestion charge and you have the power as a mayor to do that or to make sure that every public building uh, has solar panels on it, you can actually do something. You can pass legislation, you can uh, use tax incentives. There are all sorts of very direct and immediate things that you can do. And that's what we're seeing. And that, mm -hmm. that, that's why, you know, the three or four examples, uh, Freiburg in Germany, wonderful small city, uh, which could be copied elsewhere. And in some cases it is. There's a fantastic network now, network of different cities that are learning from each other. And I think that then relies on one crucial thing, which is power. Who's got the power? Who's in charge? And not only that, where does the jurisdiction lie? What do I mean by that? The mayor of New York City, uh, you know, we think of him as a very powerful person, has jurisdiction over five boroughs, which is roughly nine million people, actually just the same as London. The population of the wider New York area is about 18 million people. So more people live outside New York, and the power lies with the state governors, like the state of Texas, state of New York. So. And the state governor and the mayor hate each other. That's why we haven't had congestion charge in New York. It's, it, it's that simple. So these issues of where is the, where does the limit of the jurisdiction, who, who decides? Mexico City is another amazing example. For decades, the largest city in the world apart from Tokyo, effectively, the Distrito Federal, the mayor of the Distrito Federal, the mayor of Mexico City, only controlled an area of seven million. And uh, the current president, of Mexico was the mayor of that bit. The previous president, right wing rather than left wing, was the governor of the state around it. Their water systems didn't align, their housing policies didn't coincide, but the city was all one. So that's when you get what I would call, you know, literally uh, cities that are in, in, in a state of collapse because of the politics. Now, I think that's part of the story. If we turn back to the specifics of the of the book, um, another striking element, you itemise per hour how many people are arriving in a clutch of rapidly growing cities. For instance, 47 people, you estimate, are arriving in Lagos in Nigeria every hour. This sort of brings me on not to... Only, not only arriving, are also being born. Also, oh, so it's new... Yeah. New it, it, residents, yeah, in, yeah. In, 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 okay, yeah. so they might be so, coming in or they're, they're being born. Yep, yep. National or international, but also birth rate is going up. Of course, yeah. So, good, good distinction. Yeah, yeah. Still leads to me to my next question that brings me on to the theme of the Triennale this year. So it's broken nature. Mm -hmm. Design takes on human survival. And I want to focus on that word survival. Do you think those 47 new residents yes, okay. of Lagos can they only hope for survival in that city or can they flourish? Look, I'm a great optimist about this. And I think that actually, uh, if, if you see what happened in the 19th century in Europe, well, we had the same sort of situation. You know? We had hundreds of thousands of people moving into Barcelona, Paris, Berlin, London. Right? 
in, in very the kind of dire, dire environment, right. urban and, environment. And, and yeah. they had the same sort of problems. They had overcrowding, congestion. Average life expectancy for a young man in 1870 was 24 years of age, average in London. Right? So what did they do? They introduced sewers. <laughs> the, one of the great engineers at the time, Basil Jett, uh, did that. That led to also, um, obviously, getting rid of cholera over, and congestion, the notions of public health, and so it goes on. All these models are available today, right? And the governor of, of Lagos, actually, who is now the minister, national minister, uh, Babatu de Fashola, gets this. <laughs> the que and actually, Nigeria is not without money uh, because of oil revenues and other African cities don't have that sort of asset. So they are actually beginning to think of you know, new planning mechanisms whereby these numbers of people, which are staggering, right? By the way, it, it, it's every minute and a half that you and I are speaking, someone else Joins. has moved into Lagos. So think of what that means, and not just in terms of sewers, water, but hospitals, schools, and, and housing. Right? They're trying to sort of manage that process because they know that having people in a city is a fantastic asset and an econ economic resource. People go to cities for one reason, jobs. Right? And if you can capture the tax revenue and put that back into the city, then you can begin to deal with these issues. If everything is informal and everyone does what the hell they want, then you've got a problem. I've always really enjoyed the series of, of Urban Age books. I, I kind of look at them as a, a kind of celebration mm. of this incredible organism that is the, the, the urban environment. Mm. Some people, I think, mm. may look at it more as a sort of an alarm bell. No. Your function as Urban Age to really make us think and take action whereas maybe i'm more 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 romantic and i do look at it in in a kind of celebratory way where are you on that scale well you've used a couple of terms which may which are very interesting what, what you're picking up i mean what you're picking up is that we try and describe cities in a multi-dimensional way uh, and they're incredibly complex and very fragile mechanisms right? such as a human body right so i guess what we're trying to do is talk about cities like a human body. Not to say you're sick, but can you see whether if you keep on eating that much butter, you're gonna, your cholesterol is going to shoot up and you're going to have a heart attack, right? It's, it's a little bit like that. And are there ways of reducing the amount of butter you take and use, put olive oil instead on it, right? And those issues of density, all these technical terms that I maybe used before, are available processes which actually are very positive ways, as I said before, turning cities around and therefore curing, I guess, uh, the fragile mechanism, metabolism of the city, rather than to let it go uh, in or let them go in some of the directions they're going. But we've got to be careful not to talk about it as one thing. There isn't one city. You know, that does not, and one solution does not fit all. Depends where you are in the demographic scale. You know, it depends where you are on the economic scale. You know, what what you can do in Rwanda is not going to be the same as what you can do in Denmark. But the, I think there really are some principles, which, if you adhere to, will make cities better places to live in and kinder to the environment, which are the two biggest challenges. That was Professor of Urban Studies at LSE and founder of the Urban Age Project, Ricky Burdett. 
talking to me, David Pleasant, for the Architecture and Anthropocene podcast brought to you by Triennale Milano. Make sure to tune in to our next episode where I'll be speaking with Mexican architect Tatiana Bilbao. You can download this and every episode of Architecture and Anthropocene by going to triennale.org. Thanks for listening and goodbye.